0: spot a counterfeit. And there were a number of different videos that I watched, whether it was spotting counterfeit money or or counterfeit watches or or golf clubs or guitars. One of the biggest things that people try to counterfeit are Pokemon cards. Like, had no idea about this, but apparently it's a a really big deal. It's a really big thing. There's handbags, all kinds of stuff that people try to counterfeit. But one of the things that that they were doing in each one of these videos, they kind of explained a little bit, like, here's here's the thing to look for here's the smoking gun. If you see this, you know that it's fake. Or if you see this, you know that it's real. But the problem was, and, and what I found fascinating was almost every single one of those things you had to really zoom in. You maybe had to look under a mac- micro or not a microscope, uh, a magnifying glass, or or get like really really close to see this little like this little design here or this little like smile or hint of a, a mark here or whatever it may be that separates a counterfeit from, from the real thing. But it was just this little moment, these tiny little things that make all the difference. And as we dive into Mark 5, In a lot of ways, this is what Mark is giving us the chance to do with Jesus. He's giving us this opportunity to see see this distinguishing mark, this thing that separates Jesus from from anyone else, that separates Jesus from, from whatever we might see. He's giving us this chance to zoom in and to look and see what Jesus is like. And so last week, we looked at Mark chapter 4 35 through 41. And so our passage today and the passage we're going to talk about for the next two weeks is all one single moment of Jesus's life. It's a continuous story. It's a continuous day. This is actually the second longest recorded day of Jesus's life. You might be able to guess the first one. It's when Jesus was, was arrested and, and tried and crucified. That's the longest day, but this is the second longest day of Jesus's life. Jesus has been teaching all day. Last week, we talked about Jesus gets on a boat and he heads straight into a storm. Jesus, now he gets to the other side of the lake. He gets through the storm, gets on the other side of the lake, and he is greeted by this demon-possessed man that we read. Jesus hangs out with him for a few minutes. They get back in the boat and they head back over to Capernaum. As they're there, Jesus encounters a dying girl and a bleeding woman. And this is Jesus. Jesus is tired. And I think it's really significant, like as we see that this story is, comes together as a whole, look back to, to last week, verse 35 of chapter four. This sets our whole story up here for us. It says Jesus says this, let's, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So that's how Jesus, Jesus sets this up. And here's the thing, geography-wise, it's not far. The other side of the lake, 10 kilometers max. Six miles max. Like, we're not looking at very far distance. The other side of the lake, though, even although it's not far distance-wise, it's the other side of the world, realistically, because this is where the Gentiles live. This is where the, Jesus is leaving Israel. He is leaving this, this familiarity place that he has been, and he is going to where the Gentiles Are And we've seen already in the book of Mark that Jesus has included lame and lepers and women and children. Jesus has been interacting with all of these different people. And now we see that Jesus is beginning to interact with foreigners. That Jesus is about to get to meet some some Gentiles. And Jesus in this story, he's going to show us a little different way to live. I don't know if anybody is, is anybody a fan of photography? Anybody take pictures or, or do that sort of thing. All right, um, so just picture your iPhone for a second, okay? Uh, and so you know, you've, you've got the picture that you can take when you flip the camera app open, but if you wanna get a little closer to the picture, what do you do? you zoom in just a little bit. like, Or if you're like a legit photographer with a real camera, you put on a zoom lens. And so this week I was reading about and looking at some different pictures of, of the same picture, the same pose that were just taken with a different lens. So here's just a few of them for you. Same guy, one is with a, a normal lens, the other is with a, with a different lens. I don't know about you, but if I want a picture taken of me, I want the one that makes me look thinner, not the one that looks, makes me look bigger. All right, here's, here's another one is in the first picture. You can't really see anything, but as you begin to zoom in, you get a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. That little red speck that maybe looks like a a, a bug on the camera is actually this, this beautiful barn in a farm. Here, here's another one. This was actually one of my favorites. First picture, you, you can't see anything, but then as you begin to to zoom in closer and closer and closer, you begin to see the silos and the grain bins and the stuff that begins to pop up. So this is the difference. This is the matter of what, what a zoom lens does. Like, a zoom lens isn't about like seeing this, uh, this landscape view. It's about zooming in on a single particular thing. It's about looking really closely at one particular thing. And here's, here's the thing. This is the way that Jesus lived life. Jesus lived life with a zoom lens. Jesus lived life with, with this focusing in on one thing. Of course, Jesus could see the whole picture, but as we read through the Gospels, this is how we see Jesus live. With this zoom lens looking at people one at a time. Jesus lived life one person at a time, one meal at a time, one encounter at a time, one, one friend at a time. This, Jesus zoomed in on these one people at a time. And the same thing is true for us if we are going to be Like Jesus, we will live one at a time. We will be intentional about one person at a time. We'll be intentional about one coffee at a time. We'll be intentional about one grocery shop at a time. We'll be intentional about one meal at a time, one encounter at a time, because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus was about. And this story in Mark chapter four is a beautiful example of Jesus living life one person at a time. And so as we get ready to dive into our text, what we're going to see is Mark is brilliantly setting up some different contrast for us. And we saw this play out last week. Mark is continuing this device to kind of help us to, to understand the story. So if you remember last week, we, Mark contrasted the, 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 the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, right? Jesus is sleeping, human. He's, he's saying the wind stop, and it stops. God, so the humanity and the divinity. Then we talked about this, this fierce storm, and the fierce calm that came across the water. And so Mark is doing that exact same thing for us today. He's setting up some different contrasts so that we can start to see the picture of what is happening here. And the first is the one that we were just getting at is the contrast between the crowds and the one. The crowds and the one. Look at verses 1 and 2. So they, they arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the garrison. When Jesus climbed out of a boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. Then if we flip to verse 21, it says, Jesus got back in the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake. I just want us to put ourselves in the the shoes of the disciples for just a second. They're cold, they're, they're drenched, they're spooked, They're scared, and they finally get to the other side of the lake. They they get off of the boat, and here comes this demon-possessed man that people know about. He is bounding towards them. He's homicidal, suicidal, butt naked, and he is running towards them. What is going on here? Like, this this is insane. This is crazy. We find out that not only is he that, but he's freakishly strong. Like, the chains can't even hold him back. I mean, as we read through the book of Mark, when Jesus enters a city, what began to happen? Crowds flocked to Jesus. If you remember Mark 2, like the paralyzed friends can't even get their paralyzed friend to Jesus because the crowd is so massive. And now Jesus has left the crowds. And he's gone to this one person, this one man. Not just, not just any man, a demon-possessed man. And then we, we read in verse 21. They deal with the demon-possessed man, have that encounter with him, and they get back in the boat. If I'm a disciple, I'm thinking to myself, really? That's it? Jesus, you just risked our lives for this one crazy man? You just put us in harm's way. You just put our lives in danger, our boat in danger, yourself in danger for this one man? Like, what's the deal, Jesus? Like, why would you do such a thing? Why would you do that for this one thing? This one man, this one person, if we read through the story, this is the only reason that Jesus went to the area of the Gerasenes. He went there because this was one person that he cared about. He was willing to risk it all for this one person, this one man, this one thing. And here's the thing. Everyone considered this man a monster, like as we read through the story, like no one wanted to be around him. He he was howling at people like this guy, like they, they think he's a monster. But when we look at people through the lens of Jesus, we see something a, a little different. When we look through the lens that Jesus has, we see that this man isn't a monster, that this man he's in misery. And he starts to see things, we start to see things differently. The same thing is true with us when we look at people the way that Jesus did. We always see them differently. We look, when we look at people the way that Jesus saw people, when we pick up the zoom lens and zoom in on someone and, and, and look up, don't look at the crowds, but look at this one person at a time, we will always see people differently. There's a, uh, there's a, a homeless lady who, who is in front of our Aldi that we go to all the time. And so she's been there for, for a number of different months, like randomly we show up, she'll be there, and, and as the months go by, I would like toss her my, my two-euro coin from getting the trolley, and, and that would be about the, 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 bit of the end of our, our encounter, our interaction, our time together. And like, I, I just kept thinking about this lady, and the Holy Spirit kept putting this on my mind, I was like, Luke, you need to, you need to do more than toss her a two-euro coin. You need to do more than just like try to avoid eye contact, give her your coin, and walk away, or if you don't have anything, mom, I'm sorry, I can't help you, and and so I kept, I kept feeling this. And I'd get to the audience like, oh, th- today's not the day. Really in a hurry. Got Ava with me. Next time, next time, Holy Spirit, we'll do this. And here's the thing. I found myself, like when we were pulling into the car park, hoping, praying that she wouldn't be there so that I wouldn't feel this guilt, that I wouldn't feel guilty. And then this one time I remember thinking to myself, I really hope this lady isn't there. And we pull into the car park. It's just me and Ava going to do our grocery shop at the time. And, and there she is sitting right at the front. I'm like, I don't want to do this. But the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, you're going to do this. And so finally I just go up and I, I instead, I was like, look, I've seen you here a few different times. And I, I give you some money and I know that's, that's good, but is, is there anything that you actually need like, can I just help you? Can I go get you some stuff? And she I rattled off the short little list of stuff. I'm like, sweet. All right, we're going to go in. We'll get your groceries. We'll get these things for you. We'll bring them back out. And I'm walking out here. and I am like, okay, way to go, Luke. You've, I feel better about myself. I've talked to this lady. This is great. Like, I, I feel good. This is, this is fine. And so I go and I get her the groceries. I'm like, here you go. And the Holy Spirit is like, no, that's not all you need to do. And so I did this really powerful and intense thing. I asked her her name and that's it. And in that moment, she was no longer this homeless person sitting in front of our Aldi. She was Sarah. And because she had a name, it changed the way that I saw her. Because Ava and I sat there and prayed with her, it changed the way that I saw her. And so now, like, I came in contact with her a couple of weeks ago, and she tells me, like, here's what I need. I need a a sleeping bag. And so I look in Aldi. They don't have them. I go over to Halfords. They don't have them. Look over in Tesco. And I'm looking around trying to find her a sleeping bag. I can't find it. And I tell her, look, I, I've looked, and I can't seem to find this. And she looks disappointed. And I was like, but, I, but I'm going to get you one. And, and like, if I didn't know her name, I'll be real honest, it would have been really easy to forget. If I didn't know her name, if I hadn't prayed for her, it would have been very easy to forget that that's what I'm supposed to do. Now on my Amazon, at some point it's going to show up from Amazon as a sleeping bag that's going to ride in my car until I see this lady again. Why? Because we looked at her just a little bit differently and saw her the way that Jesus saw her. Not just as this this person, not just as this inconvenience, but one person at a time. This is what Jesus does. Like Jesus is willing to cross the stormy lake. He is willing to risk it all for the sake of this one person. And that seems insane. That seems crazy. That seems unwise until you're the one person. And then it makes all the sense. And then that's what you want Jesus to do for us. And when we look at the cross, we see that Jesus was willing to lay his life down so that we could be restored. Jesus was willing to lay his life, put his life on the line, put his life on the cross so that we could be healed one person at a time. And this is what Jesus does. As we read through the Gospels, as you read through the stories of Jesus, whenever crowds surround Jesus, you know what Jesus always does to the crowds? He always dismisses the crowds. But Jesus focuses in, he zooms in on one person at a time. We're going to see that in the next couple of weeks, the next two stories. Jesus is literally in a crowd and forgets about the crowd and pays attention to, to one person, to two different, different people, two different moments, because this is the way that Jesus does. So, so in this, Mark, this story of Mark, Jesus is setting up the, the crowds versus the one-at-a-time way of Jesus. Another, con- another contrast that we see playing out here is between freedom and captivity, We see this this play out. So there's a lot to unpack in this idea. This is like the middle part of our our section. So the first thing that we see in in verses three through six is we see the condition of the demon-possessed man. And let's just read this together. This man lived in a burial cave and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. Here's a fun fact. This is the most detailed account that we have of a demon-possessed person in the Scriptures. Like, this is the most we know about any demon-possessed person. And if you've read through the Bible, we've talked about this before. Details in the Bible are very rare. Like, it just more just gives us the information, like, very like that the grass was was wet and soft, or he had red hair. Like, that's not really things that we see play out in the scriptures. But when we find details like this, it's really important. So, as Mark is giving us these details, he's cluing us in on on something. He's getting us to focus in on this idea. Look again at how he describes this guy. He lived in burial caves. Could no longer be restrained. He snapped the chains from his wrist. Day and night he wandered among the the burial caves, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. What is Mark trying to communicate for us? I think as we look at this description and we look at the New Testament writers, Mark is setting up, this is what it looks like to live life outside of Jesus. We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually, we're we're in captivity. This is what Mark is getting at for us. It's like, this is, what, this is what it looks like to live outside of Jesus, is there's this bondage that we have. I mean, this guy, is, he's technically alive, but he's living in a cave. He's living in the tombs. He's living as if he is dead. He's captive. He isn't free. He isn't free to live. He isn't free to see his family. He isn't even freed like, to not hurt himself. Like his life is nothing but captivity. And fast- forward to the end of the story, like Jesus sets him free for, the, for probably the very first time. And I love these, these verbs that we see in verse six. Catch the, catch the verbs here. The man saw him, talking about Jesus, saw him, ran to meet him, bowed low before him. This man is active. This man is, is he's in this place of desperation and he's going out to, to meet Jesus. He's going to see Jesus. I don't know what he's expecting when he sees Jesus. I don't know if the demons are like, let's go fight this guy. I don't know. But here's the reality is there's no better place to turn than to Jesus. Whenever things, Whatever is going on in our lives, turning to Jesus is, is where, we, where we should go. And so not only in this story do we see this captivity, not only do we see these details about this demon-possessed man, but we also get a, a few details about the demons themselves. So let's look at this, verses 7 through 9. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torment me. For Jesus has already said to the Spirit, Come out of this man. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. I think there's actually a great irony here in verse 7. Look at the name that that the demon possessed man or or the demons call call Jesus. He says, Jesus, the son of the most high God. The last thing that we hear the disciples ask is, is, who is this man? When Jesus calms the storm. The demons answer the question. It's Jesus, the son of the most high God. Like this great irony here is that the demons have a higher view of, of Jesus than, than the disciples do. And he just continues on. And we see as we, as we walk through this, as we like walk through this passage, like these guys named Jesus as like this very kosher title. This was like the name for Yahweh in the New Testament, Old Testament, one of the names that would have been used. This is what the demons are calling him. And we find out that it's not just a demon that we see in verse 2. He says uh, he was possessed by a demon. We find out it is a legion of demons. And I don't know about you, like maybe you're just like, okay, legion, sure, whatever. Here's what a legion was. A legion was a term to describe 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know whether there's 6,000 demons in this one guy, but what we do know is what the demon says, that there are many. It's not just a demon. There are many demons. So we continue on with the story. So we we get these details about the demons. Look again at verses 10 through through 12, or 10 through 13. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. The entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down a a steep hillside into a lake and drowned in the water. Notice again, immediately what the, the pigs do when the demons enter. They immediately plunge to their death. Because this is what demons do. This is what Satan does. He destroys he kills. He he captures. This is what they do. Jesus says this himself in John 10 10. It's, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is what we see here. And as we as we read this story, like maybe maybe some of us object to this story, like, well, like Jesus, why would you, why would you destroy private property? Or at least let G, let private property be be destroyed. But let's, let's be real for a second. Jesus is Jewish, okay? And this man is a, is a man, he's a person. So humans always are going to trump unpure or unclean animals. Humans always matter more. And besides, like, is it Jesus who, who destroys the pigs? No. No, it's the demons who do this. They destroy them. And the demons, they are begging Jesus, Jesus, please send us into those pigs. And there's this little line in verse 13 that says, so Jesus gave them permission. Friends, that's the power that Jesus has, that the demons are even waiting for the permission of Jesus. I think it sounds a little weird sometimes to say we can learn from the demons, but I think we can. Is Are we waiting for Jesus's permission before we act? As we walk through our lives, are we waiting for the commands of Jesus and his word? before we do anything else? We say, okay, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live out your commands and my actions are going to follow your commands. Or, or is, is, is the way that we're living, is it, is it guided by the, by the Spirit? And say, okay, when you, when you tell me to go, I'm going to do it. Or are we going to keep praying that the lady's not there? and hope that we don't have to do this? Or are we going gonna to listen, are we going to follow Jesus' example? Are we going to wait for permission when we, we're living for his mission? Like, are we, going, are we living like this where we're just waiting? Jesus, you tell me what to do. When you do, I am going to do it. And we see, we see clearly that, that the demons, they come, they, they kill, they steal, they destroy, they destroy this pig, they're torturing the man. This is what they do. We've already said, like Jesus says, this is what demons do in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But that's not all that Jesus says in that passage. Jesus continues on, but he says, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I have come so they may have life and have it to the full. I have come so they can have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. John 10.10, 10, we see play out perfectly in this passage. We see what the, the thief, we see what the enemy is trying to do, still kill, and destroy. But we see also what Jesus is doing. Because if we look at the man, we see what Jesus is doing for the man. We see what Jesus does for him. He gives him this rich, this satisfying, this full, this abundant life. Look at verses 14 and 15 where Jesus is going to restore this man. We see that the herd, herdsmen fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. Some or people rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had, who had been possessed by a legion of demons. He was, clothed, he, he was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all terrified. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is a restorer of dignity and a giver of renewal. This is what this guy does. He is sitting in a graveyard, crazy and naked, and Jesus has restored his dignity and Jesus has renewed him. And maybe as we read this story, we're like, okay, yeah, no, I, I, I I can't cast out a demon. But on a very, very practical level, you know what every single one of us can do? We can help restore people's dignity. Because when we, give, when we give money to someone who is poor, we help restore a little bit of their dignity. When we give the homeless a, a place to sleep and say, you know what, you're not staying on the street tonight, not on my watch, we are restoring some dignity. When we go to a lonely person and we just spend time with them, we're restoring some of their dignity. When we visit a hospital or a nursing home or a prison, we are helping restore people's dignity. When we see the person who is overwhelmed and overworked and we step in and we pitch in to help them, we are helping restore people's dignity. This is what Jesus is doing for the man. He's restoring his dignity. Catch this, this little statement in verse 15. He was sitting there fully clothed. Where did he get the clothes? My best guess? It's probably from the man who was willing to be crucified naked on a cross. My best guess is that Jesus probably gives him the own tunic off of his own back so that the man can be, so the man can be clothed. About 10 years ago, I was a youth pastor in the States, and we were, we were doing a mission trip to the, to the inner city of Washington, D.C., and we were doing like some, some homeless ministry, going and reaching out to some homeless people. And, and so we went to the shop the, that day. We just bought a whole bunch of hygienic things like soap, toothpaste, deodorant, bottles of water, uh, all, all kinds of stuff. And we just kept filling up these like gallon-sized bags so that we could give them to, to homeless people that we came in contact with. So we got about 60 different bags. And we went into the inner city. We're, we're discussing with these people. We're giving out the different bags to people. And, and they're, they're grateful. And then we come up to this one guy who's sitting on a bench, and, and we hand him the bag, and, and he says, thank you for that. I'll take the water, but I can't really use anything else in the bag. And we're like, why? He's like, well, like, he, he's sitting without a shirt on. And come to find out that he was not allowed to go into the facility that was for homeless people to, to get a shower and to wash up because, because he didn't have a shirt, wasn't allowed to go in. And before I could even comprehend what was happening here, one of our youth, Adam, Takes his shirt off. Hands it to the man. Says, here, you can have mine. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus restores dignity. He gives this man his life back. He renews this man. Like There's this complete turnaround, this complete thing that changes here. He is crazy. He is naked. He is insane. This situation, it is just covered with hopelessness. He's beyond human help. He's in desperate need of divine intervention. And friends, that is where Jesus thrives. And so now we see him, he's sitting there fully clothed, insane. We see this passage that says this of, of this man, he was unable to be subdued. But Jesus, Jesus could. Jesus could take care of the situation. Jesus has the power. And that makes all the difference when things seem hopeless. Jesus is our hope. When things seem restrictive, Jesus is our rescuer. He steps into this, this hopeless situation, and he is the hope. He steps into this captivity. He steps into this restrictiveness, and he is the rescuer. So my question is, are you going to let Jesus be that for you? Are you going to allow Jesus to be that for you, or are you going to allow him to be your hope? Are you going to allow him to be your rescuer? Are you going to allow him to do that? Because we see this in this final contrast, this is the question that's really posed to the man and to the people in the crowd. The final contrast that we see is: I'm going to follow Jesus or flee Jesus? Look at verses 16 through 20. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away, to leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of the region and began to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. So word, it starts to circulate. People start to figure out, here's what Jesus has done. Our pigs are dead. This crazy man is, a lot, is, is back, not, no longer living like a crazy man. Like, word starts to get around. And we find out in verse 15 that the, the people are afraid. They are in fear. And so the villagers, they want Jesus to leave. They want Jesus to, to walk away. The reason is, it, is, is they're afraid. But what are, what are they afraid of? It's a good question for us. Maybe they're, maybe they're afraid of some other financial cost that Jesus is going to cost them. Like, they killed their, they killed their pigs. And so maybe they're afraid of, like, whatever else might be, Might like, come on, sure, that's possible. But Mark doesn't seem to imply that. Mark doesn't seem to mention that. I think what they're really afraid of is that the, the kingdom of God does not bring a comfortable life or status quo, but rather radical transformation, this is actually what I think they're afraid of, is that if Jesus stays my, my comfortable life, I'm not going to be able to have that anymore. If Jesus stays, this status quo, this normalcy that we have, it's not going to be the case anymore. I don't think that they're afraid of what Jesus is going to do next. No, I think they're afraid of what Jesus is going to ask them to do next. I don't think they're afraid of what what Jesus might cost. I think they're afraid of what Jesus might cost them. What is Jesus going to call them to give up? And so they they want Jesus to flee. Go away, Jesus. We're happy enough. Things are going well. I don't know if I want to deal with that. And maybe some of us in this room right now, maybe that's where we are. Is, is like we're 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 not really afraid of what Jesus will do next. We're just afraid of what He's going to ask us to do next. So we live our lives with keeping Jesus at an arm's distance, arm length away. Like, okay, um, Jesus, I know this job that I'm working. I love the title, I love the money that I make, I love the reputation or the reputation that it gives me. I know that you're telling me that I should give that up, but. But I'm just going to no, keep you at arm's length. When, when my friends are sick, then I'll bring you in and we'll talk. But, but right now, you just stay over here. Or, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's like these guys. Maybe it's like the pigs or the demons. Like, we just want to stay here. We want to stay in this land. We want to stay where we are. I don't really want to make this crazy commitment to do something insane. So, so Jesus, you stay over here. When Easter comes and, and Christmas comes, we'll talk. But other than that, we're, we're fine. You stay over here. Whatever it may be, I think some of us, we, that's what we do. It's like, we try to keep Jesus just, just close enough, not really afraid of what he might do next, but afraid of what he might ask us to do next. And here's, here's this idea that we see reinforced again. Did you guys catch the repetition of the word beg or begged? Like, like look at this. The demons say, I beg you, don't torture me. They, they begged him again and again. The spirits begged The cloud pleaded. They begged with Jesus to go away. The man begged to go with him. I think it's forcing us to ask the question, what do we want from Jesus? What are we begging him for? Are we begging him for comfort? Are we begging him to walk away? Are we begging him to use our lives to serve other people, to love him and to show the people what he is like? What are we begging Jesus for? And I think the way that we respond to a moment like this says a lot. Because these guys, they seem to be more concerned about the pigs than about the man who has been set free. And it's, it's out of fear. They're like, Jesus, we, we don't want you here. Jesus, Jesus, leave. And here's the thing about Jesus. He's respectful. He doesn't force himself onto them. He's not like, no, I'm not leaving. I'm staying here until you hear me teach. He's just like, Okay. Here's the thing if we want Jesus to flee, if we demand that Jesus will flee, he probably will. But the reality is, this sets up like when we encounter Jesus, there's only one of two options, only two ways to respond. One is to fall on our face, fall on our feet, and worship. The other is just to utterly reject him. Think of how Jesus, he is either above all or nothing at all. So we see this, like we contrast the this idea of the demon, or the townspeople, like they just want Jesus to leave, they want Jesus to flee. But as we read about this, this, this demoniac, this guy who has been demon-possessed, like all he wants to do is be close to Jesus. Look at verse two. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by a demon came out of the tombs to meet him. Verse 6, when Jesus was still some distance off, the man saw him, ran to him, bowed before him. Verse 18, the demon-possessed man begged to go with him. This is all that he wants in his life is to be close to Jesus. We see this, this beautiful statement. It says he begs to go with Jesus. That, that phrase, to go with, is actually the exact same Greek phrase that is used in Mark 3, 14 to describe what the 12 disciples are going to do as they accompany Jesus, as they walk with Jesus, as they do what Jesus did. This is He's asking Jesus, Jesus, can I be one of your disciples? Can I be one of the 12? Can I be one of those people who leave everything just to follow you? This is, this is what he's asking him. This man is willing to leave everything. He wants to be like the 12. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says no. Like, can you just imagine for just a second how this guy had to feel in this moment? Like, just like, here he goes. Like, he's, he's willing to, to do everything. And he just, he, maybe he just feels like his best days are behind him. Maybe he just thinks back to the, however long he's been in those caves. He's like, I have wasted so many days of my life in those stupid caves with these stupid demons. And, and I, I, I wanted to do this for you, Jesus, and, and, and now I can't. Like, I can just imagine, like, he's not even hearing anything else Jesus is saying because he is just stuck on that, on that no. Maybe he doesn't even hear. And when Jesus says no, I think it's important, though, it's not because Jesus doubts his sincerity. It's not because Jesus doubts his, his commitment But Jesus has something else in store for the man. Look at verse 19 again. Jesus said, no, go home and tell your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. This is the only place that we see so far when a demon has been cast out, that the the person who's been freed by a demon is told to go and tell people about what happened. And here's the thing about the man. Jesus says, go home, tell your family. He doesn't just go home, does he? No, he goes to the next 10 towns and he continually spreads and tells people about the good news of Jesus. He goes from place to place, letting them know what Jesus has done for him. And it says that the people were amazed at what he told them. Here's the the thing. Verse 21, Jesus gets back in the boat, heads back to Capernaum. If we flip a few chapters later in the book of Mark to Mark 7 and 8, Jesus shows up again at the garrisons. This time when Jesus shows up, you know what people do? They run up to Jesus and they bring them their sick and they ask Jesus to heal them. You know what else there are? There's 4,000 people that Jesus feeds in Mark 8. How did they get there? My guess? One ex-demon-possessed man told his story about what Jesus had done to him to great effect. He may have thought that his best days were behind him, but there was something so much more for him. There's something so much greater for him. A a few weeks ago, I I had one of these experiences that I had been warned was coming. I had one of these moments that I knew was coming that people have told me, just wait, you're going to experience this. And it came a little sooner than I I had hoped, sooner than I might have thought, but it was one of those moments where mentally I wanted to do something, but physically my body was like, nope, not happening. And like people have told me, hey, just wait, wait until you turn 30. Wait until you turn 31. I guess no one actually said that, but that's, that's what happened. And it's like this moment is like I was playing basketball. And, and we were out at basketball, and, and I, I have this like go-to move when my team needs a score, like, if I get the ball in the post, I do, like, this, this roll, and I, like, jump up in the air and, like, spin around and, and like, get it right up at the rim and do a layup. It's a, it's a really athletic move, and it's really impossible to defend because the only way to defend it is to foul me. And so it's got to be, like, perfect situation. But here's the thing. We were, we were there. It was time. I have my buddy Derek who's marking me. I'm like, aw. Here you go, buddy. I'm about to break this out on him and then make fun of him for not being able to guard me. And so I get the ball, and I go, and I do the move. I do the spin. I get up in the air, and I'm spinning, and I go to do the layup, and I am three foot short of the basket. And I'm just like, what just happened? And then the other team takes the ball. They run a fast break, and I'm just like, what in the world just happened here? And I'm just like embarrassed because I was already talking junk to my friend Derek that I was about to score on, and something ended up happening. And so a few minutes later, we have a water break. Do I go get water? No. I go right back to the post, and I try again and again and again, and every single time, two foot short, three foot short, four foot short. Like, what is happening right now? And I start thinking to myself, oh, okay. Well, the, the girls didn't sleep good last night, and I didn't get much sleep. That's probably the reason why. And then my other self was like, well, they don't sleep good any night. That's not the reason why. Okay, sure. But, oh, I, I went for a run today. You go for a run every day. That's not the reason. I, I haven't played basketball and jumped in a while. Well, shouldn't you be able to jump more if you haven't been doing it for a while? Like, and so my only conclusion was, my best basketball days are behind me. And like, that's, that's really, I, it was like, this is this moment that I reached. It's like, and, and even saying my best days, they're not very good. But like, this is this moment, it's like this best days are behind me. And like This has gotta be what this guy is thinking. It's like I had, I had so many dreams. I had so many hopes especially after he met Jesus. Like, there's so many great days that I have to look forward to. There's so many things that I have. And Jesus says no, but he does something so much more for the man. And here's the thing for all of us to remember. With Jesus, our best days are never behind us. They're always ahead of us. For this man, he gets to do something so much more, so much greater. So we see see in the story... The demon-possessed man, he runs to Jesus, begs to be with Jesus, wants to tell everyone about his great works. The village flee, want Jesus to flee. They want Jesus to leave and told everyone about the terrible thing that Jesus did. And so here's my question. What about you? What are you going to do? Are you going to follow Jesus? Do everything in your life to be close to him? To do what he has told you to do? Or like the village people. You're going to keep him just just an arm's length away, never truly committing to him. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you. God, I thank you for...